welcome back to an all-new episode of Surf Splendor. I'm your host, David Scales. Thanks again for tuning in. Um, Before we get into today's show, I'll bring you up to speed on what's been developing around here. Basically, the show is growing, and we need help. We've got an internship available at Surf Splendor, so if you have a passion for surfing and storytelling, we could really use your help. It doesn't matter where you live. We can work through email and over the internet. So everything about the job qualification, requirements, and how to apply is on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. Basically, it's an associate producer position. We need someone who can transcribe interviews, edit, help with scheduling of interviews, kind of a highly organized person to help cover the bases here. So if you're interested, visit surfsplendorpodcast.com for all the details. And if you're new to the show, Surf Splendor is basically just conversations about surfing. Simple as that. If you're listening on iTunes and Stitcher, you can leave ratings and show reviews there. All past episodes are archived for free. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Surf Splendor. Find us on Facebook. I've previously been asking that if you like the show to share it with a friend. I'm going to ask you to do it in a little bit more practical way this week. Go to our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com, and send one friend an email or a Facebook post with a link to our website. It's basically your way to invest into the show. The more people listening, the more shows we'll be able to produce in the future. Sound good? We'll keep cranking out shows as long as you keep sharing them. So thanks so much for listening. Um, That's enough of my sales pitch. We've really got a packed show for you today. So I won't keep you any longer. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Santa Cruz is just a rad little surf town. It doesn't have all the limelight and industry attention of Southern California but it quietly serves up superior waves in a wide range of conditions. Everything from small sloppy beach breaks to hollow reef breaks to the giant waves of Mavericks. It's a proper old fashioned surf town where surfers wear black wetsuits and they surf perfect waves without ever posting it on social media. Someone once told me that there's more shapers per capita in Santa Cruz than anywhere else in the world. And while I'm not really sure if that fact is substantiated, the point still stands. There are a lot of shapers in Santa Cruz. As much as it's a surf town, it's also a working class town. And if you like surfing, and if you know how to work with your hands, it's probably only a matter of time until you try to craft your own board. Today on Surf Splendor, we bring you conversations with four such individuals. As part of our ongoing shaper series, We tried to pick a cross-section of shapers that represent four different personalities, styles, and shaping philosophies. We have Steve Coletta of Natural Curve Surfboards, Michelle Junod, Ward Coffey, and Bob Pearson of Aero Surfboards. These interviews were recorded in April 2013 in each of the shapers' respective shaping bays. They were miked, I was not so I apologize for the compromised audio quality. First up, Steve Coletta.
Natural Curves Surfboards is hidden in an industrial building in an agricultural suburb of Santa Cruz. As I wandered around looking for the sign, I spotted a man with white and silver hair and a full beard that was being smashed by his pulled down shaping mask. He greeted me with a wide smile and instantly began telling me about the recent weather. I usually try to refrain from even casual conversation until the mics are heated up, but there was no stopping him. Ten minutes passed before I was able to pull out the microphone. I pressed record and asked him how he got involved in surfing. He laughed and said, that's a dangerously open-ended question. I've been known to ramble. I told him I appreciate the warning, but while that may sound daunting to a writer or an editor, it would be perfect for the podcast format. So, without further ado, I give you Steve Coletta. Well, my dad was a minister, okay? So he moved around a little bit like as if it was a military thing. Okay. And uh, so I was born in Alameda, which is up here okay. on the bay. And uh, I think, uh, and I can't remember quite the years and stuff, but in the late 50s I ended up uh, my, with my parents down in Los Angeles someplace, you know. And uh, actually we were out at, uh, we would go to the beach, go body surfing and stuff when I was a little kid, you know. And uh, I think I was about eight or nine years old and we were at this place called Seikos. And I saw these, it's just north of Malibu. Okay. And uh, uh, I saw these guys riding longboards. I was just going, oh man, this had to be about 56 or 58 or, wow. you know, it's a long time ago. And I, I was blown away. So uh, I, you know, I just got, I don't know, something, that, that, was, that was the moment, yeah. I suppose, when I said, that's something I, I want to do, yeah. I suppose, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was just absolutely, huh? The guys are walking on water. It's phenomenal, you know? Yeah. And, you know, my, my dad and I, all we would do is swim, body surf, and get, you know, sand in our ears and stuff. Sure. Yeah, which is pretty fun. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, I remember he moved, uh, my parents moved to the coast, uh, to Palos Verdes in 1959. Okay. And I remember my dad, uh, there was this older kid in church, you know, I, th I think I must have been nine or Oh, I was 12, 11 or something like that, something like that. Anyway, there was this older kid in the church that said he was going to take me surfing. I was just over the moon. I was going, oh, man, at last. You know, it had probably been six months since I'd seen surfing the first mm -hmm. time. And turned out we went body surfing. Oh, so I was going, oh. And that actually, you know, that actually maybe wanted me to do it more. Sure. You know? So, uh, I don't know. Was there like a cultural awareness of surfing? I mean, did you see it on TV and that sort of thing, or was it? No, no, no. It was, it was, it was. Yeah, I, I had not seen it on TV. I, you know, I, it was. You know, it was totally fresh. Yeah, yeah just was. And I, and I really almost can't remember, but sometime in 1959, I, I, I went to. Uh, I had a somehow or another. I ended up at Portuguese Bend, which is the south side of Palos Verdes, there towards San Pedro, at the beach with a longboard one day. And uh, that was that was my first surfing experience. I don't know where the board came from, how I got to the beach. My parents obviously took me and something like sure. that, you know. And uh, there's nobody around. And and one kind of grumpy guy said, uh, uh, "You know, kid, if you want to learn how to surf, you gotta you gotta go over to the South Bay and surf Rat and Torrance Beach and stuff like that." So kind of got the boot from the bend okay. <laughs> yeah. before nice I could even stand up. Yeah, yeah, you know. And so that was the start of it. And. Uh, and it was kind of weird. My, my parents were wonderful people. They were intellectuals, white-collar people. My dad was a minister. My mom uh, ended up being a psychologist. And they, were, they weren't into the beach culture that much, you know? 
and so uh, that once again made me want it more. And sure. by the time I was, you know, old enough to get rides to the beach with my friends and get a driver's license and stuff as a teenager and stuff, you know, I was gone, stoked. And uh, uh, but about 1966, 1967, we, you know, we were, we were kind of getting out of the LA Basin and surfing wherever we could and stuff. And we were running into Greeno all the time in Santa Barbara and on the ranch. And, it was, and you know, everybody was on longboards, and Greeno was on cut down things and doing, you know, he wasn't trimming, you know, he was turning, and that intrigued me dramatically. And then, and then at the same time, we started here. We saw this uh, Matt Young, Bob McTavish thing coming off of the Australian. Uh, whatever you call it, Australian surf culture. Yeah. And uh, like Nat won that, that world contest in San Diego at Ocean Beach, uh, where you know the, the, the California Hawaiian guys were just awesome nose riders and stuff. And here's Nat, he was, he was hanging five, hanging 10, then he'd backpedal and do these insane carving cutbacks and figure eights and stuff, you know? And so I think that was introducing, uh, you know, somehow or another the Greeno thing and the Australian thing uh, got together and uh, I heard the story from Greeno was that he was watching uh, fish in an aquarium in Santa Barbara or someplace in Southern California, and he noticed the speed of tuna and the speed with which they turn and stuff, you know. And and he's gone, you know. I think surfing could go that direction instead of like the this, which was the the beautiful kind of pelican skip fry thing gliding right. on the updraft. I mean, you know, wow, what could be cooler than that kind of trim, you know? Yeah. Except for a gouging bottom turn by an elite pro, you know. So, uh, both beautiful worlds, both. Totally. And, uh, Steve then told me about how he got involved with board building. We couldn't get the boards that we saw our, the guys that we wanted to emulate our surfing after because the, the major brands were still producing, you know, 10 foot long boards that weighed 30 pounds. Okay. So we started taking, we started stripping them and, uh, going around to various, uh, I mean, we went to this place, Foss Foam. There was a, there was a couple of alternative phone companies and stuff like that because I don't think Grubby would sell us phone as being kids and backdoor and not being in business and stuff. But anyway, we were we were, we were just making boards in our garages and stuff for a couple of just years there, 66, 67, 68. Yeah, and, and we would get some foam. I remember we got Foss foam, it was, of all things. I don't know, it, it's back there in the archives someplace. And he was in Long Beach someplace, I think, you know. Okay. And uh, I remember kind of uh, uh, dropping out of college after four years in 1969 and, and it was the end, it was, it was springtime and I was going, man, I really want to go on a surf trip, you know, and I saved up a little cash and stuff and I was going, God, I can't go to Hawaii, it's going to be flat, you know, and we had seen John Witzig's movie that he, I think he filmed in 68 called uh, uh, Evolution and it, it fit right into our, our thing about, about the boards we wanted to ride and stuff and it was all about surfing in Europe and stuff, so we went, wow, let's go to Europe. Four years into his five-year college program, Steve packed his bags for what was scheduled to be a short trip to Europe. In Europe, he had the chance encounter that would end up heavily influencing his career path. Steve refers to him as Diff, but you may know him as Mike Diffenderfer, the man who named what would ultimately become the world's most famous surf spot, the Bonsai Pipeline. And uh, I, I met this guy, I met Diff in Europe in 1969. And uh, he uh, became kind of a major influence on, on me in terms of uh, design and work habits. I mean, there were some kind of interesting, uh, intriguing 
leading edge people yeah. hanging out there, you know, that, that were, as being a little kid, I, I was 20 years old, I was going, sponge, please, you know, let's absorb some so, of this stuff. So Diff was actually shaping uh, backyard boards there okay. at the time. And, you know, anybody who got a Diff was just fired up, yeah, yeah. you know. And the funny thing was, I didn't come home on schedule and stuff. I kept hanging out and this and that. And uh, uh, finally dragged myself home around December or something. After I think I left in May that year. So it was a nice six or eight month trip or something, you know. We got to surf in, in North Africa and Morocco and stuff on that trip. Wow. It was pretty cool. Yeah, before chords, which was very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, so how's this? My folks sent me to a shrink, right? Oh, they go, so wow. what's wrong with this guy, you know? And the shrink's report was, there's nothing wrong with this guy. He just needs to continue his education on the coast. Yeah. Can't go to school in downtown Los Angeles, you know? But Steve did go back to school. He transferred down to UC San Diego, where he met up with his new friend, Mike Diffenderfer, who was now working down there. I had such a good time in Europe a couple years before that, that when I finished school, I packed my bags and went on a surf trip to Europe again, you know? Wow. And interestingly enough, that year, Diff was the guest shaper at Barlons. And so he was pounding out all kinds of foam. And, uh, and this is where the kind of natural curves came from. Okay. And uh, um, Diff had been in South Africa that same year. And in Durban, there was a, 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 I think he had had a significant influence at Dur in Durban and Jeffreys Bay. And there was a group of guys there that, uh, and Diff had this thing, you know, like, you know, uh, he talked about natural curves a lot in, in outlines and rockers and stuff. And uh, so, uh, there were some 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 groms in in Durban that said uh, Diff said hey you know start up call yourself Natural Curves you know and he said the same thing to me so you know there you go that's where Diff the name in Durban ever run with it or? yeah I think they did and I think their business has been and come and gone a couple of times and oh, I, really? I noticed them I googled them recently and I noticed that they 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 kind of specialize in uh, in retro boards with okay. really beautiful resin art gloss gloss and polished finishes and stuff but. Uh, uh, as opposed to, uh, say, Spider Murphy out of Durban, who's just, you know, doing what I've wanted to do all these years, you know, making glass slippers that yeah. are the cat's meow, you know? Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, I hung out with Diff, and actually we all, he and, and a handful of South Africans and I uh, uh, lived in this house uh, in southwest France. Diff would work, and we'd surf, and Diff would surf. And yeah. It was, it was so a great nice. time. <laughs> it was pretty darn cool, you know? And actually, those guys all, they were all gone and stuff, and uh, I ended up getting a job as a caretaker at a campground here, right by this kind of reef point break. And uh, and uh, I met my wife that year as well, right? You know, and, and I just hung out, and in the middle of that winter, we, we got married and moved to Santa Cruz. Okay. And so here I was in Santa Cruz, kind of going, married, going, wow, I guess I better get serious here. Yeah. And so natural curves, became the serious side of being a kind of a uh, a product of uh, that kind of really pivotal evolutionary little moment in surfing there where, where we decided we were going to do the George Greeno thing and go really fast and do crazy turns as opposed to just necessarily trimming and going really fast and right. stuff, you know? I then asked Steve about his brand, Natural Curves and how it fits in among the many board builders in Santa Cruz. Well, you know, the goals go right back to Diff. Diff said there's only one way to do anything, and that's the right way, you know? And <laughs> pretty simple stuff, you know? And so actually, uh, my, my goal has been, uh, 
you know, geez, gosh, answering a question like that almost sounds like a marketing thing, you know, like that. But my uh, uh, early on and throughout the entire uh, shaping career, you know, my goal has, has been is to shape the best board I possibly can to not waste a piece of foam, you know. Mm -hmm. Take that piece of foam and and whatever it's supposed to be, you know, make it as as uh, executed as well as I possibly can. Um, then you know, I guess maybe 20, 30 years into my career, maybe around two, the year two thousand or so, it dawned on me that that the boards, you know, what I build and myself and and the whole the business side of it too, is a brand, you know, and I'm going, whoa, jeez. <laughs> So at at that point in time, it became started to become important to me to honor the brand, you know, as much as I honored the product. Yeah. But I think that was happening naturally anyway, you know. Sure. And then the third phenomena, which is I, I, just so essential, is is and it comes out of the concept of lean production. I didn't even realize I was into lean production, but I am, you know, uh, and uh, is is it's all about the client. First and foremost, we're a team that provides something for the client. Right. You know, and on the line or the production line, we all we all get together and do our best, uh, not only for the uh, uh, the client but for the other people on the team, so that it's so that, you know it's it's not a difficult thing to take care of the client. To learn more about Steve Coletta, go to naturalcurvesboards.com or come over to our website surfsplendorpodcast.com, where we have links to all of Steve's information. Next up is Michel Junot. His boards couldn't be more dissimilar to Steve Coletta's. Michel makes a bit of everything, from short boards and fish to logs, but they are almost always adorned with gorgeous color work and gloss jobs. In our discussion, we discuss his history and design philosophy, but one thing that we didn't discuss that's worth noting is his role in Thomas Campbell's film, The Present. In the film, Campbell documents Michel's trip through West Africa, surfing with Alex Nost and Dave Rostovich. It's a beautiful film and well worth seeking out. And the only reason I bring it up is because I think it's important to recognize Michel's exquisite talent as a surfer in order to fully appreciate the work that he's doing as a shaper. Got my first board in 1962, and it was kind of trippy. I was always the smallest guy in my class one of the smaller guys in my class. So I think 13 when I started surfing and I couldn't get my arm around any of the boards. Oh, all yeah. like nine, six, ten foot, you know. Right. So I went down to Jacobs and ordered a custom made seven ten by twenty inches wide. And it was a perfect replica of, you know, a wood fin, glass on wood fin, three quarter inch redwood. If I had that board today it'd be priceless. Yeah. I mean it was so cool. So, you know, I grew out of that and then I got an eight ten Dave Sweet and an eight ten Dewey Weber and then I got on the Jacobs I mean uh, Challenger surfboard team out of San Diego. Oh, okay. Met the guy that built those back in the day. And that led to my shaping experience because I was on a surf team. And in 1966, I went to the East Coast because he had moved his whole operation to the East Coast instead of shipping boards on the West Coast. He's still there today. He's not making boards anymore. Guy Carl West. Mm -hmm. And so I spent 66, 67, 68, those summers building boards on the East Coast. And so that was really fun. That was, you know, surfing was huge right then until uh, short boards came in. I tell people this they don't believe it. When long boards went out in 1967-68 and 
the shortboards came in, 80% of the people quit surfing. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Because most of the guys were older, and they couldn't transition to the smaller boards, and they were transitioning into married life or going to Vietnam or whatever the situation, you know, the, all these things were happening in the late yeah. 60s. And a lot of people just transitioned out of it. You know, Phil Edwards stopped surfing because he didn't transition to it. A lot of guys did. What was, guys his, was his rationale, though? I don't want to ride a shortboard? I don't know what it? his rationale was, but he didn't. He was kind of a, a, a recluse guy anyways, yeah. you know, just kind of in general. But, I mean, you know, he's one of the best. And a lot of guys transitioned, but a lot of guys didn't. Yeah. And a lot of surfboard companies went under because right. this wasn't the sales. And a lot of younger guys like me started making boards kind of underground. Mm -hmm. And so it changed that whole time. You can ask, uh, I don't know if Kim was working way, way back then. I don't think she was working for Grubby way back then. But they had to change their whole thing too because of the amount of boards they were making. Yeah. And, you know, obviously all new molds and all new size blanks and all that stuff. And that kind of transitioned over about two or about one or two years. That whole thing transitioned, you know. Yeah. Michelle ended up back home in Southern California. When a friend mentioned that there was a shaping job available in Santa Cruz, Michelle loaded up his car and drove north. So that was, this place was really the Wild West then. The, was the surf leash wasn't invented yet. Yeah, yeah. So because of that whole thing, you know, people only surfed at certain tides and there was hardly anybody up here anyways. And it was like, I went, this place is crazy. And then came in like late winter, early spring, and then South Swells came and I went, there's South Swells up here. Because if you look directly out from this side of, Monterey Bay, you look south, okay. so we get northwest coming around the corner and south directly. Out. So it's pretty much like the coastline of Malibu or Point Doom, same kind of a coastline thing. You weren't bothered by the cold water or anything? No, we had okay suits. I mean, nothing like now, yeah. but you know, there was really good surf and nobody around. I mean, literally on the weekdays when kids were in school, there'd be six, five, two, none people out, you know, That's at crazy. Steamer Lane. Yeah, really good waves. And then in 74, I moved to the North Shore. Oh, and right. yeah, and I worked for uh, for Lightning Bolt, for Dick Brewer, and for Surfline Hawaii. What was going on back then is that the boards were all made in the North Shore by the surfers, and they were we brought them to town and sold them in Honolulu, oh, okay. the stock boards. And then we did a lot of custom stuff on the North Shore, but it was almost like two worlds of the town, you know, yeah. situation. And but almost all the boards were built by guys on the North Shore, and then we you know run them in and and uh, get paid and run them back out and run back out and surf and stuff. We then talked about the boards he makes now and how they're related to the boards he made 30 years ago. You've probably noticed what's happened in the last 10 years of this ride anything movement. Yeah. And there's been all this stuff of going back to the 60s and back to the 70s and making different style boards and even, you know, back to the 30s and making, you know, displacement hole kind of things. Or, right. Um, the, uh, Simmons boards and all this different stuff. So there's all this stuff out there. And so in, in the period between 1967 and 1970, we were just really learning what shortboards were because they're what they weren't before. Yeah. And so they were all different styles from kind of eggy ones to super gunny ones. I mean, the guys in Hawaii were riding 17 inch wide boards. Really? Yeah, just full, pew, just stiletto things, but they had the waves. But they still, they went too far in right. that direction. Other guys went too far in the eggy direction right. or the hull direction and stuff. So because I like to surf big waves and because um, I like going fast and I don't like the eggy type of boards, my design thing went towards the gunny side of the board boards. And what you see in all the magazines from the 70s, the Hawaiian style boards were boards that were 19 inches wide, 18 and a half, 19, 19 and a half inches wide. 
the wide point up, very pole tails. That was the kind of style of boards I did. As they got shorter, we got them wider, of course. They weren't super narrow. Well, going, you know, kind of going back in the longboard era, we weren't really too tuned in to why things weren't. I mean, really, the boards were pretty, pretty round rail, and you know, they were they were great old logs. When shortboards came in, there was a lot of you know communication going on with shapers, with surfers all the time, because the boards were so new. And it, looking back at it, you know, it was almost like looking at you know race car history. And you go way back and you see the you know the big wheels and no fenders yeah. and just this tub and they're driving along and then everything gets more and more streamlined then you have these space cars you know mm -hmm. so it was kind of like that as far as aerodynamics goes because we just felt really stoked that the boards were short and we could turn them so much better than long boards but still they were terrible you yeah know, considering what we got now the rockers and the and and just the rails and just the whole the weight and all that stuff came down all the so much change in surfing just because we were able to think a little bit outside the box more and more and more. And I think that the surfers, not the shapers, pretty much pushed the design. There's been a lot of good shapers who've surfed, but way more good surfers who don't shape. Right. And so they've kind of pushed the design thing all the way along. And um, for me, I've always you know, I've been able to surf too, and so that really helps. I've noticed along the way that the best shapers who didn't surf always made sure that they had a good team around them mm -hmm. that helped them do that or, weren't, or else they weren't very good surfers and they took others advice as to what you know going on. I think sometimes they felt maybe threatened that you know okay if I'm going to work with these guys they're going to learn what I'm doing they're going to yeah. start on their own. There's always that. Was that kind of a thing you know. But um, yeah it, just working with, with surfers has been has been incredible and also working like you said with return customers yeah. and so also what happens is you end up building people quivers because wherever you are unless you're in just terrible surf conditions you can ride everything from one foot to ten foot so you need different boards for different kind of waves right and so what I've you know what I've taken in my experience is that whether I'm shaping a long board or a short board I incorporate what I believe to be you know the best rails, the best rockers, the best bottom contours, and all those things. I know what makes things, what what designs work which way, mm -hmm. and I know how to incorporate them in certain ways in boards that sometimes people wouldn't think would be that way. For instance, I made a lot of high-performance longboards about 20 years ago that had concave bottoms, double barrel concaves, all these things that were just happening in the short boards, and that really helped them become performance-oriented style boards. But now I make a lot of logs with round bottoms and stuff like they were yeah. back in the 60s. So it all depends what somebody wants. If you want to ride one to two foot waves, three foot waves, and a nose ride, I'm going to make you a completely different board than if you want to ride a long board, you know, and up to five, six foot surf. Right. Or the same thing with a short board. If you want a board that catches a million waves, like this little brown thing over here, sure. it's a big, thick plug thing that, you know, a 200 pound guy can go out and surf. But if you're a 150 pound guy, you're going to want something thin, you know, right. something small. And the way that this whole ride anything movement in the last 10 years has developed, I think, is really helpful in that you're able to take a lot of stuff from the past. I do that, but I modernize it. Mm. I'm not really into, hey, I want to replicate some of these boards from the late 60s, early 70s. They're dogs. Right. They were terrible. Totally. You know, um, and, and, you know, hot young surfers can go out and ride them better than we rode them back then because their mind is so much more open to different kinds of surfing that we didn't have. We were, 
you know, back in the 60s and 70s. But, you know, I, I, I really kind of refuse to copy a board if I think it's a dog. Yeah. You know, and some guys come in, man, and I say, well, look, can we talk about this a little bit and try to refine it a little bit? Yeah. And that happens once in a while. Or I'll get a, I'll get somebody that has an engineering background, they think they know stuff. Yeah. And have to be kind of, kind of, yeah. kind of careful not to insult them at the same time go you know that's not going to work and i mean i've know. wondered about that too where people clients or surfers are more knowledgeable now than they yeah. have been in the past because of the internet i yeah, guess of and design forms and yep. you just read up on it but that doesn't mean they know what they're what's good for them as surfers you know everybody thinks they want to write what dane reynolds is writing but right. it's like nobody surfs like dane yeah. reynolds yeah. so it's it's really no it's really true and I my clientele is mostly um, you know some early 20s guys mostly mid 20s to guys in their 60s you know guys who can still surf good but they're not gonna go do aerials yeah they're not gonna just you know, there's no tubes around here you right. know I mean you know, this isn't Indo right and so a lot of boards I'll build for guys is you know boards that catch waves well that are still maneuverable and I, I only use green foam, I hardly ever use blue foam or the red foam because I want strong boards. And guys come to me for a beautiful looking glass job and a sturdy board and one that will work in all kinds of conditions. And so I kind of have that kind of clientele yeah. more than, you know, the rusty thing and the, and the Channel Island thing. And, you know, like for instance, Steve and I are contemporaries. I make completely different boards than right. Steve. He makes completely different boards than me in general. I'll make a thruster now and then and stuff, but he doesn't make long boards, you know. And I have a lot of people that I get on the internet with, and they're kind of blown away that I spend time with them and talk about the shape. And, and I've always done that. I've always spent a lot of time with people, you know, talking about their surf history. It's almost like when you go to, you find a new doctor and they want to know your medical history. Yeah. The same kind of thing. I want to know people's surf history. It's really important. I want yeah. to know where are you going to surf. I want to know what kind of boards you're on. Bring your boards. I want to look at your quiver. Right. And without being too critical, I can look at a board and tell you how it's going to ride. Right. You know, and tell the guy, hey, well, we can change this. We can change that. And da 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 da. da. And, you know, that'll be a better deal for you. So. Again, I'll have a link to Michelle's website as well as images of his beautiful boards on our website, SurfSplendorPodcast.com. Ward Coffee began his career by working with Bob Pearson at Arrow Surfboards in 1982. Bob will be our final interview in this episode. And that's the cool thing about Santa Cruz. Everyone has worked with everyone. In reality, they're all competitors in the marketplace, but nobody seems to view it that way. There seems to be an open exchange of information, and because of it, everyone's craft evolves and the surfing community benefits. We started our conversation with Ward telling me about one of the first boards he shaped and one session that helped launch his career. And I uh, was surfing that up at Four Mile and uh, Bob Pearson from Pearson Arrow saw me and said, hey, what are you on? And we talked story a little bit and he's like, oh, it's a neat board, you're surfing good on it. And uh, introduced himself as a shaper and stuff. And uh, so we kind of hit it off and kind of, you know, he started letting me hang out at his shop and watching him shape and stuff. And um, one thing led to another, and uh, his brother ended up hiring me working at the surf shop at uh, right here on Mission Street. And uh, so I was working working there, started working there in 1980, and uh, just 
doing various jobs, but I was just watching Bob shape boards and, right. and, you know, did he know that you were interested? Well, in he was that? totally, he was totally hip because he would make me a couple boards and we'd be in their shape and he'd go step out of the room to go do something. And I'd grab a tool and work, put the tool down. Really? And he's like, Whoa, what's up? You know? So he knew, he knew I was into it and I was always watching and I would watch Joey Thomas shape and I watch a couple other guys shape and any shaping room I can get into, I would kind of get in there and be a fly on the wall and hang out and talk story and, do stuff. So Bob knew I was I was into it, and uh, so we kind of came to agreement that he'd start teaching me to shape, and uh, so he formally trained me as, as shaping. So around '82, um, we really we built a factory over here on Mission Street Extension, and uh, we started going at it. He started training me, and I started being the, the his production guy, ghost shaper. Considering how collaborative the community of shapers in Santa Cruz is, I asked Ward if he often rides other shapers' boards. All the time. You do? Yeah, I have no ego about that. I mean, I'll try them and go surf on them. It's not like they're in my quiver, you know? But You're um, not like ordering boards from guys? No, not really, you know? Okay. I'd like to have help make me a board here or there, you know? <laughs> it would be yeah. cool, but um, I, I think it's fun. There's some there's some neat boards. I mean, I've got this Mark Richards twin fin up there that I ride every once in a while, and I've got a couple of other little tuck-away boards that I'll whip out and ride. When um, was the MR shaped? That was a production board. Probably Robin Perdanovich did that in probably '81 or '82. Okay. So it wasn't actually a real MR board, but okay. um, but there's there's other stuff. I I just I think it's really neat to do that. Um, Seems like it would be equally valuable to your learning curve. You oh, know? totally. It's like these skip fry glider boards, like this blue one here. Yeah. Um, me and Thomas Campbell have worked on a bunch of these, and I've ridden his whole quiver of skips boards and. Uh, run them through their paces and take all the dimensions off of them and every once in a while I'll say, hey dude, can I ride the 11-0 again and, and do it? And so I've got a 10-6, I've got a, a, an 8-0 and an 8-6 of those. And um, and the neat thing about those is when I, you, know, you, you get all the dimensions off a board and you're just like, oh, I'm gonna copy this board. But the reality is, is when you're shaping it, you start hitting these dots of how the shaper got to his evolution of how he, why do these contours come together? Why do these outlines come together? Why do the rails come together? It's not like I need to copy it to make it look right, but how did they get there? Mm -hmm. And like the skips were really good. I mean, the bottoms are these symphonies of contours and I'm like, ah, I understand how. That. And then we were out surfing and you go, ah, I really understand. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's really super valuable, man. That's, yeah. that's, that is the, Walking in the footsteps of the masters and um, the oration or whatever you would say of passing down knowledge, you know, I I think that's more important than anything. Right. You know, I mean, I teach my kids that. I'm always giving away my kids. People come in and want to know what about this or what about this. I'll say, get a piece of paper, get a piece of wood. I'll draw you a template and I'll write dimensions down on you. Then you go do it. Right. You know, if you need help, give me a call. I'll help you through it. So. That's, I've always had that open door type thing, and I think everybody should, should. I then felt inclined to ask Ward perhaps the most cliche question you can ask a shaper, and that is, what's his opinion on hand shaping versus machine shaping? The quick explanation for the uninitiated listener is that some shapers have boards cut and pre-shaped on a CNC machine. It saves them time and also allows them the ability to replicate boards with exact precision. Hand shapers often claim that machines have no soul, and the machine guys say that it's just a more efficient way to run your business. And of course, that the boards are then hand finished 
once they get off the machine. I asked Ward to share his thoughts on the topic. So, my dad was a, a, a printed circuit designer in Silicon Valley. Okay. Okay, he did all the guts for, for printed circuitry. And uh, so he was a draftsman by trade. And he actually had worked with AutoCAD when AutoCAD was in their infancy of just starting out. And he, he showed me, um, basically explained to me how that worked and what a Bezier curve is and that whole system of plotting numbers to create a, a, a curve or whatever. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, that's cool. And then when he, f I started shaping boards and I showed him my first board shaped and he's all like, oh, that's really neat. Ward, now how are you gonna reproduce that? I said, I just go in there and do it. But how do you get, get exactly to done that way? And I was like, you just do it. And he goes, he goes ah, you know, you know the, the CAD system I'm working with, with these guys, we can do this and you can get a, a CNC machine and cut it, you know? And we're talking back in 79, 80. You know? And I'm like, nah, there's no soul in that, Dad. No one wants it. Everybody wants a handshake, you know. And he's all, well, just let me know, because me and my buddies, we can go to Ames Research and go to the, go to the scrapyard. We can put these things together. It'd be really a fun project. And I'm like, nah, there's no way, man. That's never gonna happen. The, the machines aren't ever gonna take over, you know. So, you know, ten years of working at Arrow goes by. I learned my, my apprenticeship of how to be a production shaper, and you know, I, I learned my skill, learned my trade, you know, and, and then. Uh, and then you go forward to now and uh, you see where the industry is now and how many boards are produced that way <laughs> versus handshape. So I'm kind of an idiot, but it's also, I'm kind of like, it's a funny little story that I feel kind of good about because I, otherwise I really wouldn't have learned right. my skill set that I have right now. And using the planer is the one thing that I love more than anything in shaping. It's the one thing that I can put on street clothes and go and mill, mow out of it. Because I have a, a vacuum to my planer, so I don't get dusty when I plane. Yeah. And my feel with the planer is I can get a board 85% shape with the planer. Mm. You know, I mean, there's a little sanding, a little stuff on there. But that's the part that I really like. Doing stuff on the computer would take that away from me. It would take that part of the shaping away from me, which I'm not really ready to let go yet. Yeah. You know? The scrubbing, the sanding, the, the fine-tuning, I'm just like, ah, I, you know, that's... Get a machine for that. Yeah, exactly, exactly, you know. But when I look at a card or I talk to a customer about a board and we design a board or come up with a board, I know in here where, where it is, where we're going to go with it. I can walk in there and turn on my planer, plane it out, you know, have the template on it, plane it out, and get it, like I said, 80, 85% there and go, that's done. That's, I've got the essence of that board right. in there. I've got it where I want it, you know? And um, so anyway, but you know, these arms aren't gonna work the same and there's gonna be databases that I need to hand on to kids and things like yeah. that, that, so. Lastly, I asked Ward about his eponymous label and the challenges of building boards one by one to suit an individual client's needs. Well, be it. Being a custom shaper, that's, you know, it's part, it's part psycholo you know, psychological, being analytical, um, giving the guys what they need and what they want together. Um, that's the hard part, you know, because, you know, I keep track of the numerical, they keep track of the, the emotional yeah. <laughs> end of things. And I try to keep a, a very definite separation of that. And um, yeah, I want what Dane rides. I want a neck beard or whatever. And um, I, my, I can barely do a cutback. Yeah. <laughs> and so you go right on. Okay. We, you know, we can do it. I can do that, you know? And, and, but I've found what I really, really, really found is that 
over the years, I've, I keep really good records of all my boards. I was trained as a production shaper, so when somebody says, oh, I want a board you made 10 years ago or 20 years ago or last week, I can pull their file up. I know what blank I made it out of, what stringer arrangement, what density of foam, and all the dimensions. So I keep all that. It's really good. But what I've been learning more and more as far as being so anal about that is that getting the essence of that board getting the essence of the whole package together, not just hitting those numbers exactly. Um, and that's what a lot of times when guys are copying boards or even the guys that are using machines a lot is, yeah, they can do the same shape 10 times over, but why does a pro grab the board and feel it and look mm -hmm. at it and pick one out of the five? Mm -hmm. There's there's an essence in there. And so it's just really trying to get that, trying to, mm -hmm. nail, trying to nail that a lot of times is what I'm finding um, more so. So. Hmm. You have a unique opportunity in that your kids surf, you know, and you could shape boards for them. Yeah. So yeah. can you tell me about how that relationship is in terms of getting boards for them, getting feedback from them, but then also being able to do it over a long period of time? Mm -hmm. So you see them evolve as a surfer. Can you talk about that at all? I mean, what's that like? Yeah, I mean, that's that to me, it's, that's been like really the ultimate because from a very little age to where they're at now, um, I've watched them surf and I can see certain things as they're developing. And it, I kind of waited for quite a while to start making them their real true custom boards. They were on foamies and they were on other things before I really started making them custom boards. And, and Ben, my older son, he's 15 now. So when I made him his first surfboard, you know, we just kind of made a, made a little board and he wrote it. And he's kind of slender and upright. He has a, comes from a longboarding background, both of them do. And so when he started shortboarding, he had a narrower stance and he surfed more upright, you know? And I'm and he's riding the long ways at indicators and through down through the lane. And I'm like, gosh, he really needs to kind of crouch down a little bit. You know, he needs to bend his knees a little bit. So the next board I built him, I put the wide point forward, put a little more foam up the front. Sure enough, he moved his foot forward. Without and, even having to tell Without him. Even having to do it. So that was a design thing that I was already like, I saw it, I thought of a board design, I thought of what we can do to help them do that, and we facilitated and did it. So we've gone through these different little evol evolutions of stuff, and so when I make them boards, they, they look at the boards, and then they'll wax them up, and they'll get fired up like kids do, but as soon as I see them riding a wave or whatever, I can kind of see or feel what is working and not working. You know, mm -hmm. like sometimes I just go, oh, that's, that, that's a miss. That's a straight miss, but I'm not going to say anything. And they'll ride the board, and maybe they'll struggle, and maybe they'll break through on it, but I'm like, eh, you know, maybe he'll work himself into it, and it'll be okay. But the feedback I'm getting now is insane, because mm -hmm. as they're both growing, as they're both progressing, um, the feedback's really good just because they're ripping, but the main thing that's super cool is their hand-me-down boards are going to other kids, and I'm seeing these quantum leaps from these other kids on their equipment. Really? And because those kids are at where they were. So they're the control, but then seeing what's happening out, outside of the control and seeing kids make breakthroughs is really cool. That's really cool. You know, that's like the ultimate satisfaction that we're on track. We're doing right. good things. We're doing cool things to these boards. And, um, and that's on the performance shortboards. You know, what they're doing on longboards and on the mini Simmons is crazy. You know, and they have... The, you know, they're lucky to have a dad that's into all these boards and throwing them boards all the time. And they've, yeah, they've, sure. they've made a few and stuff like that. So it's kind of hard for us to go on surf trips because 
none of them just have one board they want to bring. There's going to be four or five boards that they're fighting over. I want to bring this, I want to bring that, I want to bring that. And we're, so our car is loaded up with all these boards, you know, and, and, you know, we were just down south and, you know, we had long boards, we had our short boards, we had our mini Simmons, you know, and they're still thinking like, well, what about, how come we didn't bring that board? Right. <laughs> you know, because we serve Oceanside, we serve Trestles, we serve San Onofre, you know, we were like <laughs> going all around. You know? so, so that part of it's good. And it's the same thing. It's, it's what any shaper, when they see a pro guy riding something and, and they just, they make a design evolution and they see a guy achieve a world title or, or whatever, it's that same thing, you know, and having your kids do it's even cooler. Yeah, for sure. Way cooler. Totally. You know? <laughs> All of Ward Coffee's information can be found on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. When I was a Grom, one of the most memorable images in my collage of surf magazines taped to my wall was an oversized poster of the infamous Jay Moriarty Wipeout. The only logo on that giant board is that of Pearson Arrow. The board was shaped by Bob Pearson. I became even more familiar with the logo through Flea and Barney, whom were featured almost monthly in magazines at the time, doing crazy airs and other antics, for me, the Aero logo became synonymous with Santa Cruz surfing. Our final interview this episode is with Bob Pearson. I began by asking Bob how he came up with the Aero name and logo design. My first label was uh, a red dot, and uh, I came out with that at the same time Sam Hawk and Hawaii came out with it, and we looked at each other, oh, red dot, and I think both of us got off the same thing. I had red dot for about a year. And uh, I was living in Hawaii for a while, and a buddy of mine, Lopez, and Jack Shipley came up with this lightning bolt, and they're walking around this big, long lightning bolt board from 100 yards away. You see this lightning bolt, and I thought, boy, that's a good marketing idea. So I thought an arrow. So I yeah. put arrows on my board. So I had all these arrows on my boards walking that's around. That's interesting. Yeah, and it worked out good. And so uh, arrow, I like the idea of an arrow, and yeah. then Pearson arrow, Yeah. you know, like pace arrow and all that stuff. So the direction, the energy. Right. So it just went off in that direction. That's and that it. was uh, early 70s. I then asked Bob about some of those images from my youth of Flea and Barney doing crazy airs and how his board design evolution helped accommodate the modern surfing. Uh, Kevin Reed, he was the first guy to, to do two airs. Uh, he was doing airs and I remember Rusty Priesendorfer coming up to me and going, I heard about it, I can't believe it. I just was out there and you just hopped over a couple of guys into all these airs. I was blown away. Where was that at? Uh, that was down at, we were down at a Huntington Beach surf, uh, oh, okay. surf contest there. But uh, yeah, Kevin was the first guy to do airs and I was just, he was phenomenal. I remember just fronting up to the beach and uh, I, I lived right there at Stockton Avenue. I came up there and looking out there and Kevin was out there and was standing with her by five, six guys. I'm watching and Kevin just, it's a round hollow wave. Yeah. It's a it's a shallow reef and it it's doing it. And he takes off first thing, does is whip around, does a backside aerial three sixty lands and goes. No I mean, guys have a hard time just taking off, making this thing. Yeah. And we sat there for a few seconds, just you know, jaw dropping, looking at this and going, unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. You know, he was just so futuristic. Bob is equally well revered for short boards, long boards, and guns. He was also an early adapter to the stand-up paddle trend. 
stand-up boards. I'm working with Laird Hamilton right now. I've right. been, uh, I saw that. Laird uh, started the whole stand-up thing, and uh, and I was I've been making boards from day one. I was probably one of the first shapers in the world to start shaping these things. Uh, they're called stand-ups. In the very beginning, I was calling them uh, hoi nalus. Mm. The word stand-up didn't exist, and mm -hmm. so I'm making these things, and the, the whole factory we're going, oh yeah, that's a hoi, that's a hoi nalu. We're making these, and Laird's an incredible writer. I mean, I'm making them everything for. So many big variety of boards for small waves, hundred uh, uh, boards for hundred foot waves. Made him a balsa board for a hundred foot wave really? and uh, guns and I'm making him finless boards right now. And the, the feedback, the energy, the, it's just incredible. I mean, I talk to Laird almost every day, and the fire up is just <laughs> exciting. So he seems like somebody who would be a effective communicator and knows what he's talking about when it comes to board design. Like he's, he's he seems astute. Oh, Lair's awesome. He, yeah. He's really intelligent. He really knows surfboard design. He's really into the R&D. He's really into making a better board, better board, better board. And and everything works, what what works better for what he's trying to do. And right. um, he's out there doing a, such a big variety of stuff. I'm making boards for Chopu, yeah. you know, for, for one-foot wave Hanalei to, to 20, 30-foot Hanalei, you know, and everything's just, you know, spreckles and jaws and all these other ways. And uh, in the shape room a lot with Laird, you know, yeah. just doing the next board, next board, next board, you know. And How did that relationship develop? Uh, I went surfing a good buddy of mine, Bill Romanowski. He's a NFL, was an NFL football player. Uh, Bill and I were going to go down south. He he was friends with Laird, and we went down to go surf with Laird and went out there at uh, at uh, Little Doom and uh, met Laird. And I had a surfboard, Romo had a surfboard, and Laird had a, uh, like big Tana board with a, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I was watching him and at this point Romo and I were sitting on the beach and Laird's paddling out and I was just, just amused and laughing. I thought how cool, some guy just getting on some sort of ridiculous thing and right. jumping out there having fun. It's all about fun and I go, I'm impressed with this guy. That's really neat. He's out there and he made a wave from the first point to the second point to the third and I was just out there and I'm a good surfer. and. I had a board that was fast, and I couldn't make the section. And he made this, and I thought, "Wow, what lucky, lucky he made that! It was amazing, you know, just a freak wave." Yeah. Then went out there and did it again, did it again. I go, "Man, there's just there's something about that board, that thing yeah. that makes he can make a wave that I can't make on this thing." And and he wasn't, no one was making section except for him. Right. And then uh, he surfed on through right there, saw us, so he. Faded left, came to the beach, walked off, his hanging five, stepped off the sand, walked up to me, and I'm just, let me try that thing. So I grabbed this thing, went out there and tried it. And I was flopping around a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Went out there, caught a few waves. All of a sudden I said, wow, this is fun. I'm seeing fish. I'm seeing this. This is so new. This is so fresh. This is so different. So the learning curve, jumping on that. The workout was amazing. I was that night. I hurt from head to toe, my gut, my arms. I was like, what a workout. Yeah. And I'm like, I got to make one of these toys for myself. So there was again, I made myself one of them. My friend wanted his friend, and Larry's friends were this. The next go, the whole thing just went. When was that, approximately? You know, time is amazing for me. I just, I, I can't believe. I always say, oh, there was a, you know, it's always twice, three times longer as I yeah, thought. Yeah, but that yeah. was right when it first came out. I mean, I was, I rode the, Laird had the first board I ever saw, and I was on the second one I ever saw. And um, that was uh, 12 years ago. Bob then brought up a topic that seemed to be recurring with each of these interviews, and that is how to translate feedback from clients. 
Yeah, I've been making boards with some of these guys like Flea. Uh, his dad and I are really good friends. And I remember Flea just was born and, you know, third, fourth birthday, you know, we started talking about uh, the boards, you know, mm -hmm. and making, getting on boards at an early age and through the years, you just, you, like Flea and Barney, they're really good friends and uh, they both out there, they absolutely rip, but they're on radically different boards. Barney likes oh, a real right. flat tail rocker. And uh, Flea likes uh, more tail kick. The tail kick turns tighter, quicker, easier, but the uh, flatter tail gives you a lot more drive acceleration. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. so they all like these different styles. You go out surfing, they're doing the same thing. They like yeah. it, but uh, he's got his design, he's got his design, and that's the nature of beasts. Everybody surfs a certain way, has their own style, and that dictates what kind of board they should get. Right. And that's the shaper's job, I guess, to be able to translate, because they would both come in and say that they want maybe to do the same thing on the wave, but... It's your job to kind of decipher how to give that to them, I guess. Yeah, through communication. And then you get back and make a board and you get back in and you, you say, all right, how's this board? Oh, I love this board. All right, good. Rate on one to ten. Ten being Mavic perfect. Oh, nine. Oh, so there's a problem with it. It's a great <laughs> board, but there's a problem. What's the problem? Well, no, there's no problem. I, well, well, what'd you like better? And you talk, okay, possibly more drive. A little of this, a little more of that. I want to turn tired. Get more of a vertical roundhouse cutback. I don't want to do a two-part turn. I want a three, you know, just a one-part turn all the way around. And, you know, there's different things you can do to achieve that. You know, to yeah. get that, you know, a little more tail kick. Pulled in the tail and more and you'll get that, you know. Yeah. And so you just talk to the guy. What do you want? want? And there's a big variety of ways to get certain things. Certain things that you do something will be a, a positive or a negative with it. No matter what there is, there's always a positive or negative. But you try to keep the positive outnumbering the negatives in, uh, in design on the board. You know. And what is, is really good is Clark, uh, I mean, not Clark Film, um, U.S. Blanks makes this, uh, such a, makes such a big variety of blanks. It's all I need. I mean, they got great short boards, fish, eggs, hybrid blanks. They've got the, the gun blanks that are perfect, a big variety, close tolerance. The foam is awesome. Lightweight, I can get lighter weight foam if I want, and real lightweight, I can get dense foam for the nose riders, a little heavier boards, you know, structural. Get whatever I want. So uh, I'm very stoked on the U.S. blank relationship right now. And then, of course, another recurring theme came up. The debate about machine-shaped boards versus hand-shaped. And... Uh, I, I do, we do a lot of boards here, and I'm busy. I have shapers that help me shape. I have a CNC machine, and these are all off of my things. And it, the CNC machines, some guys think it just pops out the board exactly what, what yeah. you want. It doesn't. I have one of the best machines they are, and I have my machine does a lot more passes, a lot more cuts, so it's a lot more accurate. But still, there's a lot of finishing in it. And uh, yeah, I mean, if, if if a quarter-inch tolerance is good, that's no problem, but I'm into a 30-second you know, tolerance, 16th is a little too much. And so getting that tolerance just right, you got to get in and, and shape it. And if I sign the board, I spent time on it. Right. Yeah. Um, that was going to be my next question, actually, was about the machine. Um, what are your, Do clients have an opinion about the machine? Do they like it? Oh, yeah, well, of course, everybody's got their opinion on what it is what isn't, but a lot of people have no idea. It's like EPS foam. A lot of guys go, uh, I don't want the EPS epoxy foam. I, I like fiberglass boards. You know, everything's got fiberglass on it. People don't know. There's so much ignorance out there. So many people don't know, and they read this, or they hear this, or my neighbor says, or the magazine's saying, the magazine's written by a bunch of guys that don't know what they're talking about yeah. because they heard from their next-door neighbor. You know, it's amazing right. what's out there. Uh, if someone thinks about the CNC, they, they, uh, the bottom line is it, uh, 
if I shape a board, and let's say I shape it for my buddy Jay Moriarty, and he rides this one, rides it through the years, all of a sudden he gets a board he absolutely loves. Yeah. And his friends ride it. And his friends ride it. All of a sudden I'm finding myself making that same board over and over again. I can take that magic board, scan it on my machine, it digitizes the toolpath. Now I can put a blank up there, secure it really good, and my machine will duplicate that board within a 16th tolerance idea. Now that's real good. So I'm not starting with something that's so big. I'm starting with something that's real close to what I want. Mm -hmm. And then I get my calipers are out and my measuring devices measured off and I just, it's faster. Mm -hmm. So I can get this magic board, exactly what I want, significantly faster. Mm -hmm. But it's important that you have a good machine. A lot of these machines, I was one of the first guys in the world to have a machine and I've had it for years. And uh, you need damn near two forklifts to pick my machine up. It's mm. real big. I can do 14-foot boards on it. And so there's a big variety. Some machines can only do like 8-foot boards, 9-foot mm. boards. And uh, my uh, secure hold-down devices is, I've got a lot of them. A lot of guys say it's overkill. My machine is too big. It's too to this, but it's no, it's not overkill. The more you hold that blank in a lot of different places, the secure it gives, your blank isn't flexing as the bit's sure. cutting it. And so you get a more accurate shape. And in the beginning, when I first had the, the machine, a lot of my competitors are going, oh yeah, Pearson uses a shape machine. He doesn't hand shape anymore, which is bull. And the machine isn't bad. It, it repeats, it isn't good. It repeats the same thing over and over again, which is bull. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of guys think, oh, I don't want to use a machine. These days, though, more and more people are using machines. They're understanding the advantages of, of them. So it's turning into more of a positive thing. But it's absolutely a positive thing. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's the way you can increase your production more accurately. Yeah. yeah. And it's a better, it's more efficient use of your time and skill set. It's like anybody can cut out the outline of a blank. So why would you waste your time doing that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. I also feel like if you free up that time that you're wasting doing kind of the, the brainless stuff, it frees up your mind to explore new ideas, design ideas, or yeah. more shaping. Yeah. Or even spend yeah. more time with customers discussing it. You know, it's Absolutely. Just... Yeah, that machine has freed me up. It's allowed me to uh, increase my production, increase my accuracy. That's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. It's all a good thing. Yeah. I have all my riders, you know, they prefer, they get a board, they know the advantage. If they get a board they really like, it goes on the machine. Mm -hmm. And then it spits it out like that for them. And they're stoked. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, they go, okay, I want to change this to this. You do it on the machine. You tweak it. You scale it. Right. You know, and it's it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. But the bottom line is when they, uh, those boards come off the machine, they don't go to the laminator. They go back into my shaping room, and I climb all over them. Right. And it's a, the game plan is always get a guy in a tent. If if he, I always rate it. Rate it. So you like it? Yeah, it's great. I love it. All right, rate it. It's yeah. a it's a nine. Well, at that point, I'm not happy. It's just, right. You know. Right. Oh, it's the best board I ever had. All right, rate it. It's a nine. I go. Wow. Why isn't a ten? So we get back in the room and do a ten and. I'm into that. Yeah. I get a ten. I'm going. All right, you're done. Let's get the next. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> Um, what's next, you know, what's on the horizon for you? Are you, um, happy spending seven days a week and surfing an hour a day or do you see that changing or what's next? next no, yeah, I'm very passionate about this. I love this. I mean, uh, I'll talk to two or three or four of my main writers today, you know, talk to Laird or, or Josh or 
Barney or, or you know Flea mm -hmm. or some of these guys, and they'll call up and say this, this, and I just I'm stoked. Yeah, I'm fired up. Yeah. By the time I get off the phone, I can't wait to come in here and play. Yeah. You know, I, this is this is exciting stuff. I enjoy this. So this is good. Work, sure, it's work. Workaholic, yeah, but you know, I'm playing. This is good. I'm excited. I'm passionate. You know, you get an artist in there painting and stuff. Is that work? Sure, but if he's really into it, mm -hmm. you know, I'm really into this. Then when I take this toy out and go ride it in the ways, personally, and I'm out there with my friends on their toys, right. and we got grin from ear to ear, and we're out there having all this fun. That's where it's at. I mean, it's just, I'm a pretty lucky boy yeah. to be in here playing like this. concludes this episode of Surf Splendor. Thanks for tuning in. Before we go, I'll share some information with you about upcoming shows. I received an email from Denton P, who mentioned that he likes the Shaper series, but he wants to hear more depth about design, theory, materials, etc. And I agree. I think that we're ready to go deeper, so look forward to that type of uh, conversation with Shapers in future episodes. My email address is hello at surfsplendorpodcast.com. Feel free to share feedback and show ideas there. Also, the collaborative episodes with Scott Bass from Down the Line have gotten really positive feedback, so we'll continue to produce those. In a few days, we'll recap the Quicksilver Pro in France, which is currently underway. And then I think we're going to be doing a live, like host a live episode from the boardroom show, which is taking place in Costa Mesa, Orange County, California on October 5th and 6th. So um, look for that as well. And then if you'd like to continue this conversation, you can do so on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where our handle is at Surf Splendor. If you download from iTunes or Stitcher, make sure to rate the show and leave a review. It's really cool to see our little show climbing the ranks. And most importantly, we could use your help growing the show. And the easiest way to do so is to share it with a friend. Could you imagine if you just emailed our website to one friend or posted it on their Facebook wall? Our numbers could potentially double in one week. The more people listening, the more shows we'll produce. Shows are scheduled for every other Monday right now, but it'd be amazing if we could get it up to one episode a week. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you guys real soon.